Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Uh, I was called uh, as senior pastor of TCPC in 2012. It feels like ages ago, um, but I remember it like it was yesterday. It was young, 32, and uh, the weight of all of it, everything that is bound up in the calling, was landing on me in a profound way. And I, I remember feeling caught in a lot of ways, feeling... Um, Pressure from some to hit the ground running with new vision and initiatives. Pressure from others to uh, give a reassurance of stability that, you know, things aren't going to change, change fast. I remember the awkwardness of being um, youngest person on staff, asked to fill the role of senior leadership, being younger than the majority, if not all, of the session and the congregation. And I just remember kind of all of these unsettling complexities um, as I tried to decide what would I preach uh, for my first sermon series. And as I prayed, I, I, I truly remember it like it was yesterday, I remember very clearly the Lord pressing upon me the need to just preach Jesus and trust that that is enough. Just, just give the church Jesus. And so where I turned was Romans 8. Um, which historically has been viewed as the fullest expression uh, of Jesus and his gospel and all the implications and applications of, of his gospel and scripture. And for a year, um, if, if you were around back in 2012, you know this, for an entire year, we just slowly made our way through Romans chapter 8 together and just kind of basked in the, the glory that is Romans 8. Fast forward to this week. And, you know, we're preparing for our first in-person gathering. Um, I have three Sundays uh, with you before I shut things down for my study and writing leave and vacation during July. And I, I remember feeling kind of the same feelings that I was feeling back in 2012. I'm exhausted. You're exhausted. Everyone's exhausted. Crisis upon crisis. So many things that I could speak to, so many things that people want me to speak to, and once again, feeling paralyzed on what to preach. I'm going to return to Acts in August. I have not forgotten that sermon series. When I come back, we'll, we'll look at that. But what now? How could I possibly speak to this moment when this moment is kind of a convergence of countless moments that are all significant in their own way? And so on Monday, as I was still didn't know what I was going to do, I was talking to Mark, and I said, Mark you have any suggestions for me? Like, what, what do our people need? What, what am I going to say? And Mark said, 
uh, why don't you go back to Romans 8? Why don't you go back to Romans 8? Because that's what we need. We need Romans 8. And I think he's right. All I know to do right now is just, just give our people Jesus and trust that that is enough. Not that I'm unwilling to speak to the moment or the hour. You know that's not true of me. And I plan to in different venues like my podcast. There's one coming out about things this week. And I'll speak more specifically. But here in corporate worship, I'm just going to give you Romans 8 for three weeks. And trust that that's what we need In this famous chapter, there are three groanings. This is how I'm going to order the next three weeks. There are three groanings in Romans 8. The groaning of God's creation, the groaning of God's people, and the groaning of God himself. And so, uh, what we are going to do is, is examine these groanings. Our world is groaning, and we are going to ask Romans 8 to make sense of the groaning and offer hope to it. Today we begin with... Uh, the more all-encompassing groaning that our world is familiar with, the groaning of God's creation. And I'm going to answer, uh, briefly answer two questions from the passage. Why is our world groaning, and will the groaning end? Why is our world groaning? Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul's diagnosis of the world is that the entirety of creation, we know that the whole creation, nothing is exempt, has been groaning in pain together, and that has never stopped, he says, even up until now. So that's always true. It's always been true of our world, but right now we know it to be true in more intimate ways. We feel the groaning of creation in ways we have perhaps never felt it before. Why is... Why is this? It's the why question that I want us to answer. That is to say, what is wrong with the world? Now, I can't tell you how important that question and the answer to that question is in this moment. Because right now, there are a lot of proposed answers out there. A lot of false answers to that question are being spread. Everyone is trying to diagnose. Everyone is trying to figure out what is wrong with our world. And it seems nobody is answering it correctly. Some say white supremacy is behind all of this. Some say liberal education and entertainment is behind all this. Some say the police state. Some say the media. Some say capitalism. Some say socialism. Some say millennials. Some say boomers. Some say Trump. Some say Dens. What does the Bible say? Like, just cut through the madness and ask, what does the Bible say is wrong with our world? If we can't diagnose the problem, then we don't even know where to start. Well, notice verse 22 starts with the word for. And that is because this is the final conclusion, this is the end of a compounding diagnosis that Paul has been making in verse, the start in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. I think the ESV or the NIV does a little bit better job. Creation was subjected to frustration, a frustrated groaning. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now the reason why the world is groaning there is twofold. Judgment and hope. We see the judgment in this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. So the world has been subjected to groaning. It is, there is a judgment 
upon the world right now and has been since the fall. Not willingly. It was something pronounced upon the world in judgment. And this is indeed what we saw in Genesis 3 that was read earlier. In response to sin, God pronounces a curse upon creation. Thorns and thistles will infest the ground and in pain we will toil and labor and thus the groaning begins. But please listen. This is not a vindictive judgment. God does not hate the world. God loves the world. So why the judgment? Well, that's where hope comes in. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, so the the creation is under judgment, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So there is hope behind the groaning. I talked about this very verse at the beginning of the pandemic when so many people were asking, where is God? Why is God allowing this? And I took them to this verse. I, 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 I took all of us to this verse and said that the pain... The suffering that we are seeing is rightly understood a mercy of God. It's not pleasant, but it is merciful. If you think this world is a mess, and it is, imagine the world without the common grace of pain. Imagine this world without there being painful consequences to bad actions. Total anarchy. You see, essentially pain serves two functions. It's a warning sign that what you were doing is not good for you. So my kid jumped off yesterday a porch that was way too high for him to jump off of, and it hurt, and it taught him, don't do that again. That's not good for you. And pain serves as a symptom of a deeper problem. So you get a sore throat, and it's telling you, There is a deeper virus attacking your body. So it tells you to stop it, and it tells you what's wrong. Now, these things may be unpleasant, but thank God for them. So in this way, the Lord subjected his creation to pain in the name of hope. As long as sin is in the world, this world will groan. God will not allow a sin-sick world to remain asymptomatic. He just won't. And therefore, the groaning is telling all of us something. It's pointing to the truest problem. Behind it all, behind racism and riots, COVID and cancer, behind every groaning of creation is our sin. Which means, in a very real sense, every single one of us here is complicit. If you want to use the buzzword systemic, use it, fine. The systemic issue behind every issue, the system in which we all participate and perpetuate is sin. Therefore, G.K. Chesterton was right to answer the question of what's wrong with the world with two words, I am. If you look at the news cycle and you want to weep, first weep over your sin. If you look at the news cycle and you want to scream, first scream over your sin. If you look at the news cycle and you want to critique, first critique your own sin. It all begins there. There are problems elsewhere, problems that need to be addressed by God's people, but the first problem is me. And I really want us to be reoriented around that truth in this season. I'm nervous right now about what we are consuming. Any theory, any philosophy, 
any project, anything that does not begin with the fundamental conviction that sin in general, and my sin in particular, is the problem, if it doesn't start there, it's not biblical. So why is the world groaning? Sin, original sin, total depravity, period. That's what we believe as Christians. How that sin manifests itself, we can discuss, and I'm willing to discuss But humanity's sin against humanity's creator is what is wrong with the world. It is why our world is groaning. So is that it? Are we relegated to a history of groaning because of our sin? You see the problem and the reason why we try to invent different diagnoses and philosophies that don't start with original sin is because if you start with original sin, then it seems like it's hopeless. I mean, if our world is groaning because, because we're all sinners, that ain't going away. So does that mean that the groaning will not go away? Well, no. Paul's not done with his argument, which means the sermon isn't over. We've answered why the world is groaning now. Let's answer the question. Will the groaning end? Return again to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, that is very interesting word choice. He does not say creation is groaning in the pains of death. He does not say creation is groaning in the pains of tragedy and loss and trauma. He says the creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And that makes all the difference when we understand a biblical diagnosis of creation. What it implies is that the chorus of groans that fills this world is not a fatalistic groaning. Instead, these are groans of childbirth. Is labor and delivery painful? I have been told that is the case. Never experienced it. Seen it up close four times. It appears that it hurts, and it hurts a lot. So why, ladies, why in the world would you put yourself through that? Because you believe, you expect, you are confident the pain to give way to surpassing joy. Every step of the way from morning sickness to agonizing contractions is endured by hope that something is coming that will make it all worth it. And never has that hope been proven in vain. I visit a lot of hospitals, a lot of new mothers, a lot of new babies, and not once Have I had a mother say to me, well, that wasn't worth it. Every time, every time, it is so worth it that the first sight of the newborn child has a way of undoing nine months of groaning. And this is how Paul chooses to describe the condition of creation. This world is in labor, screaming and writhing, no doubt, but screaming and writhing to give birth to glory. And so the bad news is, yes, creation is suffering. The good news, which in the end will overwhelm the bad news, is that that these are just labor pains, which will indeed give birth to a reborn creation joined with heaven where sin is no more and therefore groaning is not allowed. Jesus will, in fact, undo all that Adam has done. And it's at this point where we are now just confronted with the challenge of hope. And it is a challenge. Do you have, are you willing 
Do you have the courage? Do you have the tenacity? Do you have the grit? Do you have the resoluteness? Do you have the patience to actually believe that what we are witnessing will actually give way to shalom? Do you actually believe that? Will you, even now, in what for many of us is the darkest cultural hour of our lifetimes, will you still, even now, believe in the birth of hope? Now, I'm not asking you to blindly believe that. The Bible doesn't ask you to blindly believe that. Remember, Romans 8, at its core, is an exploration and application of Jesus and his gospel. Why do we hold fast to what Jesus will do? Because we know what Jesus has done. When we get to take communion again, and may God hasten the day, cannot wait. But when we do, we will declare what we declare every time. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ shall come again. Never, ever, ever do we ask you to just naively proclaim Christ shall come again as wishful thinking toward a happy ending. Not at all. We believe that Jesus is risen from the dead as the beginning of the world's healing, and he shall come again to consummate the world's healing. So friends, you really can trust Jesus right now. You really can. Where we find ourselves is Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is the day of Holy Week that doesn't get talked about much, uh, doesn't get much attention, but um, every year it becomes more and more significant to me as a depiction of where we find ourselves. Jesus, lifeless, defeated by death, buried in the darkness of a tomb. And on that day, hope, promise, all of it hangs in the balance. And not just the skeptic, but the realist would have to say, there is no way this turns out good. There is no way this can be fixed. Now, can you not relate to that now more than ever? That's where we are, friends, surrounded by darkness with no conceivable way that this turns out good, that this ends in hope. And yet Jesus has already showed us once that he can shatter what we know is true with a much greater truth of hope. And therefore we can and he will, he can and he will do it again. So yes, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and therefore we know Christ shall come again with 100% certainty I proclaim to you the groanings of creation will cease forevermore. I love that line in Stephen's offertory song. End of groaning, end of groaning, full redemption, earth shall sing her major key. What a line. Groaning will end, fullness of redemption, no more minor keys of lament, earth will sing her major key. What now? What does it mean for us now? Let's apply this to our lives here in the groaning because that's how we're meant to, that's what we're meant to do with it. I want to take, what I want to do for applications, take Paul's metaphor that he intentionally used and extrapolate two applications from this metaphor of pregnancy. Um, and let me pause before I, before I do that and get into the illustration. And, and anytime, anytime you talk at length on this, I just want to offer my love and compassion and acknowledgement to those who have gone through the pain of infertility, miscarriage, perhaps um, an abortion you regret. I know that talking pregnancy can sting, um, and I just didn't want to jump into this illustration without recognizing that and telling you um, I understand and I'm sorry for your pain. And, and I just want to assure you that despite 
your experience is the project of God's redemption will never suffer a miscarriage. Now, with that important caveat to the hurting, let's turn to Paul's imagery here and, and apply it to us, okay? The first application is to never lose sight of the baby. Never lose sight of the future hope during this present suffering. Again, the only reason pregnancy, labor, and delivery is worth it is because of the baby. Were a mother to lose sight of the baby, she would become overwhelmingly disparaged and hopeless in her suffering. The suffering without the promise is a hopeless place to be. But of course, that's not possible for an expectant mother. The baby is this ever-present reality inside her that will not let her forget. But I want to suggest the same is true for us. What do you think Paul means when he says what he said in our assurance of pardon, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation? What do you think he meant there? He means it quite literally, that the new creation that is coming has begun in you, has been born in you. The presence of God that will one day fill the world fills you. And you and your life are literally meant to be a preview of the eschaton, a foretaste to our world of what is to come. I know things look bleak in the world. I understand that. But don't lose sight of what God has, has done in you. His grace, his mercy, his healing, his redemption in your life. That's the truer story than the new cycle. That's the future destiny of this world. So yes, we groan with our world, but not as those without hope. And in this way... That hope that we never lose sight of transforms the groaning. The second application is not just to never forget that the baby is coming, but is to act like the baby is coming. It is certain that the groaning shall end. If it's certain that the groaning shall end, then let's start acting like it, shall we? Every expectant mother will tell you that that nesting instinct is for real. That baby's coming... She knows it, and she is getting her world ready for the baby's arrival. The nursery is painted, the crib is assembled, the clothes are purchased and neatly put up, the diapers are stocked. She is working for what she knows is coming, and in so doing, she is bearing witness to its coming. Christian, we are called to live as if the resurrection is actually coming. Because it is. We are called to prepare our world, the little world that God has entrusted to you, your family, your vocation, wherever God has you, we are called to prepare this world for its coming deliverance by laboring as if the labor shall cease. Why do we try to fix a world that seems unfixable? Why do we try to make earth look like heaven when it seems to be a living hell? Because we know a secret. A secret that in word and in deed we are making known to the world. We know what is coming. We know that just like Easter Day, there will come another day when this world will be surprised by hope. And because of this, our labor is not in vain. That's exactly how Paul concludes his teaching on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, his, the most robust teaching on the resurrection in all of Scripture, Paul essentially says, Jesus is risen, therefore we're going to be risen, and in fact, all the creation is going to be risen. No more groaning. And in response, Paul declares, this is application of all that teaching, therefore, because of the resurrection, because of what is coming, 
My beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in the resurrected Lord, your labor is not in vain. The baby's arrival is when the nursery makes sense and proves effective. And so will it be for us. When heaven comes down, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, every Christian endeavor toward a better world will be realized, will make sense, and will be fulfilled. So friends, I know our world is groaning. We're groaning with our world. But let us never forget that these are groaning pains of redemption's labor. Our day, one day, groaning will give way to glory. Let us never forget that hope and let us live as if that hope is true. Let me pray. Lord, I so badly want to take communion. We so badly want to take communion. But we trust that your promises are true and that you will meet us in unique ways and that by your spirit, you will take this truth, this coming glory and transform our lives by it. Let us never lose sight of what is coming and let us live as if we know it's coming. Lord, we trust you with this work. It is your spirit's work. And so we ask that you would change us by this promise and that we would live it in this hour of groaning. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.